It's 64 AD. For those of you who aren't into history, that's about 30 years after Jesus died. A long time ago. It's 64 years. Uh, 64 AD. You're walking through the streets of ancient Rome. And life is hard. As an ancient Roman, life is hard. You live under a corrupt government. There's no national health service. There's no national insurance. There's no uh, nice, generally uh, smooth roads outside. There's no job security. Uh, generally, most people live under some sort of threat, either illness or, or the empire or some sort of threat. It is hard to live in Rome. And as hard as it is just to exist, this night is, is particularly harder. You're a Christian. You're on your way back from the worship gathering. You've been meeting together with your brothers and sisters. And on this evening, something's different. There's a, a heavy smell of smoke in the air. The air is kind of thick with, with this kind of dense residue of, of fire. Large parts of Rome over the last few days have been raised to the ground in a great fire. And you're on your way home. It's late at night. For as a Christian, you're full of joy and hope. You've just been rereading a letter that the Apostle Paul has sent to your church. We've been reading it together, haven't we, folks here in Liberty Church, and enjoying the truths it was originally uh, written to this church in Rome. And you've been remembering how Paul describes this transition in your life as people who were once hostile to God, as people who were once enemies of God. Right to the start of the letter, the Apostle Paul made it really clear who you were. You were against God and he was against you. And then you enjoy the hope of the gospel as Paul unpacked a little bit more. As, as Christ intervened in your life through his life, death, burial and resurrection, you've now been changed. You've been given a new hope. The grace of God has come towards you and transformed you from those who are enemies towards God who are now his friends. You've been rejoicing together with the brothers and sisters as you meet together in this little house church. One of many lights across the city as the church meets rejoicing and celebrating and sings, singing spiritual songs and psalms. Listening to this letter again, enjoying the reality that for you there is therefore now no condemnation because you are found in Christ Jesus. Enjoying the reality of the mercy of God that has come towards you. Enjoying the reality that you have been justified in Christ. He has made full payment for your sin. You are full of hope and joy. The Emperor Nero is the ruler of the Roman Empire this time. And as this fire is kind of ravaged through the city, attention starts being drawn towards him. And criticism coming towards him. He's kind of signed off all these kind of shoddy developments. He's trying to expand the, expand the empires as fast as he can. So different developments are being thrown up as fast as possible. But they've been cutting corners. And as a result, this, this fire has ripped through the city. And so in order to deflect the attention away from him, he starts spreading rumors. It was the Christians who started the fire. They did it. And in the following days, soldiers start knocking on the doors of your brothers and sisters and start rounding them up, throwing them into prison. You end up in prison with them. And each morning, the soldiers will come in and pick out the strongest men, the strongest boys. 
and would lead them to the amphitheater, would dress them in animal skins and push them out into the front of, of hundreds and thousands of people, spectators who have bought tickets to come and see this show. And they would push them out and then release wild dogs into the amphitheater. And the crowds would clap on as your brothers and sisters in Christ are ravaged to death. Other days, some of your friends are taken out. And they are nailed to crosses which line the streets on the way into Rome. You wouldn't sleep at night because at night time, he would come and Nero would order that others would be brought out. And they would be doused in oil, placed onto stakes and burned alive so that, so that Nero's guests coming to his parties could see their way into the city. And yet as opposition grows, so does the church. Christians at that time stood out and they shone bright. People described these early believers as having a strange happiness, a countercultural devotion to each other, an unshakable devotion to God. They were suffering and they were opposed. And yet they were hopeful and they shone bright. What made the difference? Let me read our last part of Romans 8 this morning, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? That these things is everything that Paul has already described, the beauty, the fullness of the gospel. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing stronger in the universe than the love of God. Nothing. And some of us know that this morning. If you don't know that, I pray and I hope, and as I've been preparing, I pray and I'd hope that, that by the time that we're done, that you would know that. That you would know that that is true. That God's love is the strongest thing in the universe. That you would believe that that is true and you would also believe that that is the most important truth that you need to believe. But even for those of us who do know that already, how often do we functionally live like we don't believe it? How often do we doubt the love of God towards us? 
How often do we believe that certain situations or certain sins or certain people or certain places can distance us from the love of God? Or at worst can even separate us from the love of God? The reason that these verses that we have just read are in the Bible, folks, the reason that they are there are to give us confidence that that is just not true. We may believe, if you are a Christian here this morning, we may believe that that there are things that we can do or say or be or, or things that we can get involved in that might distance God's love for us, but that isn't how God sees it. We've just read how God sees his love towards his people. And the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome just maybe three years before everything I just described about Nero's rule became a reality for them. He writes this letter to prepare them, to equip them, to convince them, to reassure them of God's love towards sins. He uses four questions. The first question is verse 31. He says, okay, if God is for us, who can be against us? You'll need your Bibles open, folks, if you haven't got them. We're going to just work through this together. If God is for us, who can be against us? And just, just to be clear what Paul is saying, he's not saying there is no one against us. We've already seen that, that that is not the case. There is so much that is against us. Our past can often kind of stand against us or come and try and tempt us into thinking that we are who we once were. God's enemy, Satan, can stand against us. The world that we live in, which is broken by sin, so often can stand against us. Haven't we seen that even our own flesh can rise up against us. Paul doesn't ask who can stand against us. He knows that many things do and can. And he knows that on our own, we are no match for any of them. That isn't what he asks. He asks this, if God is for us, who can be against us? When God saves us, it's not like he He saves us and and calls us Christians and then gives us like a survival box and says, okay, off you go. You're on your own now. I'll see you at the end. I'll see you at the gate. and, And here's everything you need. That isn't how he works. When God saves us, he unites us to himself. He adopts us into the family of God. Just grasp this for a moment. Because we are brought into the family of God, the same love that God has for his son, we experience that same love. He loves us with the same intensity that he loves his son. God's son Jesus loves us as his own brothers and and sisters. The spirit of God is that guarantee. He literally dwells in us. And let's not kid ourselves into thinking that that's a normal thing. Like, like, just consider who we are for a moment. Just consider who we are, not on the outside. Like, most of us will do our best to, to put up that, that, that good facade and to live the good life and to do the good things. But really, we know who we are by the things that we think behind closed doors and the thing that we look at behind closed doors and the, those desires in our hearts that we would wish that no one would ever see, yet the Spirit sees them and He still dwells in us. God knows us, really knows us, and he is still willing to say, I am for you. I am with you. 
Now, there might be 101 reasons that we could come up with for why God would not want to love us. the, The funny thing is, they are actually reasons for why God does love us. God's love is for the sinner. God's love is for the rebel. God's love is for the prodigal. God's love is for the broken. Our sin isn't something that blocks out the love of God. That is what drew him to love us in the first place. God is for us. Who can be against us, folks? Second question, verse 32. Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How will God not give us what we need for life and faith? How will God not give us what we need to to persevere through the trial, through the suffering, through just the difficulty that it is to life? Like Rome was hard and so it is today. It is hard to live today. And Paul is saying, how will it be that God will not give you what you need to persevere? And his answer is rooted back in, in the start of the verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Where was it that God didn't spare his own son? The cross. At the cross, God the Father gave up his son. The cross, God the Father abandoned his son. At the cross, God the Father did not intervene to rescue his son from death. But at the cross instead, he put out all of the judgment that is due to us because of our sin onto his son. At the cross, his son suffered the cruelest of deaths. At the cross, he was was falsely accused and falsely tried. At the cross, he was flogged and he was beaten and his back was ripped open. At the cross, he was... He was nailed hands and feet at the cross. He was stripped naked in front of his family at the cross. He was spat upon at the cross. He had a crown of thorns pushed into his brow at the cross. He was mocked and he was abused. And who did he do that for? God the Father gave over his son to endure all of that. And who did God do that for? Let me read that verse again. If you've got an ESV, just fill in the blank with me, please. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Paul says okay because that is true why would he hold anything back from us God has given the most precious thing that he has to us he has given us his son he has nothing more valuable to give and so why would he withhold anything that we need right now God is not a reluctant God If he gave up his son, then there is no limit to his love for us. We're not going to miss that, right? (laughs) Micah, um, my son, six years old, is becoming a fanatic about Star Wars. Thanks to some of you. (laughs) Nothing to do with me. 
Um, and he's got wind of Star Wars land or Star Wars world in Disney World. Is that right? In Florida? Um, they've obviously spent a lot of money making uh, this um, theme park kind of themed on Star Wars. I looked it up, how much it would cost to go. He's never going, right? <laughs> two nights in the Star Wars hotel would set us back um, $6,000. Okay, just two nights. And there's no point going for two nights, right? You're going to go for a week or something. But let's just imagine, right? Don't pass this on to him because he'll just go... He'll, he doesn't kind of understand the, the difference between truth and, and lies at the moment. So he might kind of think that this is a real thing. But just imagine. We decide to go. Like, we find the money from somewhere and we go for a week. I don't know, that's going to cost. £15,000. And we decide to fly first class. Like, if we're going to go, let's go. Let's go all out, right? So we get in the car, we drive to Manchester Airport, we get in the plane, we get all the, all the just enjoyments of first class travel. And you know, that's going to cost thousands of pounds. We land at the airport in Florida and we get a car. And, and guys, this has cost us a lot of money. We're going to enjoy this, right? We drive to, to Disney World. We get there and then we see... Uh, as we approach the, the, the parking uh, lot, that it's going to cost us £25 to park for a week. Now imagine if I said, oh, sorry guys, I'm not paying £25. Let's pack the bags, let's get back on the plane, and let's go home. Like, that's not, not going to happen, is it? We've already spent so much. We spent, signif- we spent probably all the money that we would ever accumulate in our savings account. We spent everything we have to get there. I'm not going to be put off by a £25 parking ticket. Folks, when we tempt ourselves or listen to the lie that God will not love us because of X, Y, and Z, just think about what he has already given to us. He has already given us anything. He is not put off by a sin. He is not put off by a struggle. He is not put off by weak faith. If he gave his own son, how will he not graciously give us anything else that we need? God's love for us was sealed at the cross. And it's no more strong today than it was on that day. He's already given us everything. Let us not doubt that he will give us what we need right now. Here's the third question. Verse 33, Paul says, Who shall bring a charge against any of God's elect? It is God who justifies. See, religion condemns. You might not say it on the tin, but that is what it does. It tells you that you have to get better, or it tells you that you have to change this, or you have to stop doing that in order to be accepted. If you want entry into the deity, whatever that is, whether it's uh, Muhammad or, or uh, um, sorry, Allah or, or, or even just the deity of, of yourself, your discovering, you need to, to stop doing this thing or you need to start doing that. There's a set of, of morals that you have to attain. And the, the thing about religion is you will never keep them all. You will always fall down. You will always fail. Here's the difference with the gospel. God does not condemn those who have, who have failed morally. God justifies them. God makes them right. We have no hope of keeping ourselves morally pure. And so God does that for us. He makes us right. In the death of Christ, as we are found in Christ, our sins are put to death as he was put to death. 
And as he rise again from the grave, we are risen with him. We are given a new life. And the resurrection is sure proof that our sins have been dealt with. That we have been justified. We have been made right. And God's justification over Christians is the final word. There is no judge above God. So in the United Kingdom, if... um, Imagine I committed a crime and it went to the local magistrate's court and I was found guilty. I could then go and appeal to uh, the Crown Court. That's the next court up. And if they found me guilty, I could then go and petition uh, the county court. And again, I could keep going up to the High Court and then the Court of Appeal. But as soon as you get to the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, if they, there is, Matt's looking up, there is kind of one other, it's a grey area, let's not go there because we haven't got time. There might be one other court after that, but for the sake of the illustration, the Supreme Court is the highest court in the land. And if they say you are guilty, you are guilty. That's it, the final word. There's no more appeals that you can make. Think of how infinitely higher a judge God is. And when he says you are not guilty, you are not guilty. Nothing can undo that. His verdict on his children is final. Paul uses this word in, in verse 33, God's elect. That is, that is those that God has chosen. Like it isn't that God is stuck with us. <coughs> he chose us. Hear that? He chose us. That means I can't do anything to separate myself from him. Just like, uh, think, of, think of our parents. Like, we didn't choose to be our parents' children, right? They chose to have us. And we can't undo that. Like, we can act like we're not their children, but there is nothing that can undo us from being their children because they chose to have us. And in the same way, God the Father lays his affection on us. He grabs hold of us. He chooses us to be his children. And there is nothing that we can do to undo that work. The bond between us and God, through his son Christ Jesus, secured by the Holy Spirit, is infinite and eternal and cannot be broken. And so the answer to Paul's question is, no one can condemn us. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. Read with me in verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And we need to know our sin is grievous, but it is not bigger than the love of God. Cross did not defeat Jesus. Jesus at the cross took the full condemnation of God for our sin, past, present, and future. And then as we read the rest of the verse, Paul says more than that. It's not just that Christ has died, more than that. He was raised. He is right now at the hand of God and he is interceding for us. Yes, our sin is grievous, but it is not stronger than the love of God. Our sin has been dealt with at the cross. And three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, proving that the Father had accepted his sacrifice. And then he ascended to be with God. And right now, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. There is a person. There is a man, Jesus, fully God and fully man, who is seated, the Bible says, at the right hand of the Father. And I love this. What is Jesus doing right now? 
He's not looking down on us at disappointment. He sees, right? He sees what we're doing. He sees our hearts. He sees our sin. He sees our rebellion. But he doesn't look on at us in disappointment. He isn't fed up with us. He isn't looking at us and thinking, well, well, there she goes again. She's back at that sin again. Or there he goes again. He just can't get away from it. What is Jesus doing right now? Praying. And who did Paul say he is praying for? Let me read it again. He's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for, what's it say? Us. Let this truth fill you with peace and assurance right now. If you in any way feel that the love of God has grown cold for you right now, know this. The sovereign king of the universe, the son of God, Jesus, is praying for you and 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 me and you, Ella. He's praying for you right now. Like I think so often we get a, a sense of the beauty of being the people of God, of being the corporate people of God. But he's praying for you. You are the subject of his prayers right now. So in those moments of doubt, in those moments of anxiety, when darkness descends, when we sin again, know that Jesus isn't frowning at you. He is praying for you. Here's the last question. Question number four, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's quoting from, from the psalm, just kind of giving us this picture. That this has always been the case. God's people have always been opposed. We've always been those who will suffer in the world that we live in. Tribulation, which is, is kind of just this great opposition that comes towards God's people. Distress, we know that. Persecution, we know that. We know what famine is, nakedness, just this idea of being humiliated. That has always been the case for God's people and it always will be the case. Paul lists out all, all these kind of types of possible things that might separate us or we might think would separate us from the love of God. But then he says this, when we feel like it might, when we're in those situations and we think, well, maybe this is it. Maybe God's had enough. He's a patient God, but, but maybe we've pushed him too far. Paul says, no, this in verse 37. No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. You see what Paul's doing there? He's like, he's like listing out all these other potential objections, things that we might come to God and say, yeah, but what about this? This thing might be too much. This thing might separate me from you. And then he, at the end of verse 39, he's like, or anything else in all creation. Just in case you come up with that other thing. He's like, no, anything. There is nothing in all of creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
we are more than victors, Paul says. See, the cross enables us to look at the hardships of life from, from a perspective of victory. From a perspective that says these things, these difficulties that we are facing, they will not separate us from the love of God. And Paul wants the church in Rome to know that. And God wants us at Liberty Church to know that there is nothing that can go on in our lives if we are his that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And now I know that isn't kind of like a light switch that we can just flick on. And it isn't. It isn't like we can just read this and be like, okay, I get that. Let's, let's go. Nothing's going to stand against me now. I'm going to be strong enough. I'm going to succeed. I'm going to persevere to the end. That isn't quite what Paul is saying. We need the help of God to give us that perspective. And that is why in verse 37, Paul says that it is through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors, but, but not in our own strength. Nor as we stand alone, Paul says, it is through him who loved us. It is through Jesus that we find victory. Apart from Jesus, all of those things will defeat us. All of those things will drive us into despair and they will bring us low. But, but through all that Jesus has done, we do and are able to find victory. Apart from Jesus, folks, we will be conquered by sin and death. But in him, we have an absolute assurance of victory. And just so we're clear what, what victory means, he's talking about a good and gracious outcome for every single one of us. In every hardship that we will face, haven't we already seen this? In Romans chapter 8, God will bring about his good and he will bring about his glory. I don't know whether you've been following... Um, any of the news threads that have been coming out of Kabul uh, around the underground church there recently, that is a real, a real persecuted church. And as you kind of listen to, to the persecution and the distress and the tribulation and the famine and the nakedness and the danger and the sword, the literal sword that they are under, what is so captivating is the hope that they have in the face of death. Our suffering brothers and sisters will not defeat us. In fact, those of us who've been through any element of it or are there now will testify to actually just supernaturally suffering and distress and everything Paul has listed out there actually presses us further into the love of God. Have you seen that? In the times that you're without, in the times that on, with a worldly perspective, it would look like you would, be, you would be defeated and brought low. They are the times when actually we're able to feel the reality and the closeness and the presence and the power of the love of God. Isn't that wonderful? That God's enemies would throw everything at us and try and disrupt us and try and convince us that God doesn't love you. But actually God in his infinite wisdom uses those moments to show us that he loves us. this verse from John chapter 6 verse 37 as we close Jesus says this the one who comes to me I will never cast out the one who comes to me I will never cast out God holds tightly to those who are, are his um, last micro analogy he gets the the, the um, the brunt of all the bad analogies, doesn't he, poor guy? 
Um, Mike is learning to swim at the moment, and it's quite a spectacle. If you want a bit of um, a bit of a laugh, uh, Tuesday nights, uh, 5.30, Waver Tree Swimming Park. Just go and have a look in the window there and see how he's doing. It's quite, quite the sight, um, especially his, um, his backstroke. Very funny. Anyway, uh, when, we're, when we're kind of in the pool together as a family, he's bold and he's courageous and he can swim a little bit and he'll kind of take my hand or hold on to me and start pulling me into the deeper end. It's like, Dad, look at this, look at this pulling me in and doing a bit of a stroke and he'll kind of do a few and then and then but as we kind of get deeper and deeper into the deep end here's what I find it's less him holding on to me and it's more me holding on to him folks we all have real reasons why we think God should leave us and his love for us should grow cold and your grip on God this morning might feel loose For his grip on his children is everlasting. He holds on to us. And he loves us because of his choice. So keep coming to him. Keep crying out to him. He hears you. He is near. He is able to save. He is able to deliver. And he will never cast out those who come to him. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that love is not something that you do it is who you are we thank you that you have loved for all eternity you have poured out your perfect love onto the son and jesus you have loved the father and holy spirit you've loved the son and we just thank you that, that you know what love is we thank you that in your grace and mercy you have not kept that confined to yourself but you have shown us and jesus we thank you that as we we look back and we look at your life and we see your works all the way through scripture, through all eternity, we can see that they are all out of love. Love for the Father, love for the Spirit and incredibly love for us. Father, where where we have been deceived or grown in or fallen into the trap of thinking that that you have moved away from us, that, that your love has grown cold towards us, that, that you, are, you are disappointed with us or you are frustrated with us or you are just, just that little bit away from giving up on us. Help us to believe the truth of your word this morning that you are for us. Help us to be convinced that you have shown us and we need not see anything else to be convinced of your great love for us. so convince us Holy Spirit assure us comfort us encourage us embolden us help us to believe it's in Jesus name that we pray